Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Michigan out five. It's time for our mobile minute. Over the past few hours, we've been getting messages from people on their Facebook page saying they're getting an alert about extremism, new notifications from Facebook. Take a look right here. This is just one example on Twitter. This is going viral on Twitter. This is what Twitter user Matt Navarra posted on his account. He said the notification is showing up when Facebook users click on certain content groups or individuals. The notification says you may have been exposed to harmful extremist content recently. Now, the notification offers you to click a link to get further support. Facebook has not yet commented on this new notification and it appears as if these new notifications have just started rolling out. We're going to work to find out more information about this and when we do we will post it. Okay, that was the corporate media clueless pretending version over at NBC of the alarming new development of Facebook accusing anyone with an opinion dissenting from the U.S. establishment of extremism and or inviting them to turn in friends and family in that regard. Well, instead, let's hear from RT reporter and contributor to the show, Caleb Maupin, when he got one of those notices in a Kafkaesque case of When the News Reporter Becomes the Story. In the last few days, a number of Facebook users got a bizarre message when they logged in. Some users got a message saying that they may have been exposed to violent extremist content. Others got a message urging them to report their friends who may be becoming violent extremists. A bit Orwellian, don't you think? Here's what the Facebook spokesperson had to say on it. This test is part of our larger work to assess ways to provide resources and support to people on Facebook who may have engaged with or were exposed to extremist content or who may know someone who is at risk. The entire approach is, condemns, the, condemns itself and the fact that uh, like the, the, the artificial intelligence doesn't get irony, doesn't get humor, doesn't get the difference between Asian hate and anti-Asian hate, can't tell the difference between anything. I don't trust the algorithm, I don't trust the company and uh, thousands of people I know on Facebook would like to leave it. The Facebook prompts never offered a very clear definition of what extremism is. I guess it's in the eye of the beholder. However, Facebook has announced a partnership with an NGO based in Chicago called Life After Hate that is intended to help people escape the violent far right. Now this all comes after months of pressure on Facebook to crack down on certain viewpoints. You can take this content down. You can reduce the vision. You can fix this, but you choose not to. You have the means, but time after time, you are picking engagement and profit over the health and safety of your users, our nation, and our democracy. The dirty truth is that they are relying on algorithms to purposely promote conspiratorial, divisive, or extremist content so that they can take money, more money and add dollars. We can do this with you or without you, and we will. Not all users are supporting this new initiative. Report your extremist friends and family based on your own subjective definition. What could possibly go wrong? Facebook wants you to tell them if someone you know is becoming an extremist, which these days is synonymous with thinking for yourself and having a backbone. I haven't gotten any warnings from Facebook that I might be interacting with political extremists, and it's really making me feel like a nerd with lame friends. At this point, Facebook has engaged in mass bans of individuals deemed to be problematic. It has taken measures to work against certain news outlets, but all of that is not enough. Americans are still thinking for themselves and asking dangerous questions. So now we have extremism notices. What will be next? This is suddenly and rapidly getting to the ludicrous level of political enforcement of thought and ideas. And it is, on the one hand, terrifying, and on the other hand, amusing, because they're going way too far, way too fast, and everyone seems to be laughing about it. They are responding as if the media is composed entirely of millions of customers who are planning a violent revolution against the government, and it's the social media outfit's job to get to the bottom of that and solve it, and they're storing all this data and sharing it with the sitting government. It's ridiculous. 
is nothing more than them attempting to criminalize political dissent in order to shut it down. But it's actually social media trying to scare people into shutting up about things they don't want people to talk about. And in a further note in our Arts Express News from Strange Places this week, the U.S. hunting down what it deems domestic extremists and urging everyone to inform on them is nothing new. Take this Red Scare period in the last century U.S. Army information film. When hunted down as a communist, could get you imprisoned, lose your job, driven to suicide or exile. And in the case of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg in 1953, executed by New York State. So are we headed in that direction again? Time will tell. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings, or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently. By the early 1950s, Communist Party membership had declined considerably, but Cold War propaganda inflated its threat to fantastic proportions. An evil so pervasive that the whole society had to be mobilized to combat it. May Day brings a wave of anti-communist sentiment as 100,000 march down New York's Fifth Avenue in a loyalty parade. Everyone from vets to youngsters reveals his inborn dislike of communism. A united answer to those menacing our country's liberty. What is this? Where do you think you're going? We have no time for explanations. Already we are 15 minutes behind schedule. I don't care who sent your why. You're not going to take another step until I see your warrant. Warrant? We need no warrants. As a member of the Young Communist League, your daughter has volunteered for farm work. She's to be transported immediately. The truck is waiting outside. You say my daughter volunteered? That is correct. Here's the signature. Requesting transport to the People's Collective. Signature on that piece of paper is false. And everything you've said is a lie because my daughter would never leave here of her own free will. Sergeant! You've got no right to be in this house. I'm going to give you just 10 seconds to get out of here. Daddy? It's true, Daddy. I did volunteer for farm work. Linda, why? The party convinced me that I should free myself of the lingering bourgeois influence of family life. I am ready. Do not interfere. It is for my own good. And Comrade Donovan, do not think that your deviationist remarks shall be overlooked. They will be reported to the proper authorities. You're listening to Arts Express, and coming up next, what appears so nihilistic about that period is we were products of our generation. We felt the 60s failed us, this country failed us, so we came together as a rallying force to document, as exorcism, the dilemmas we were living. Punk rock rebel musician, performer, and poet Lydia Lunch phones in to explain. Talking punk versus New Wave, Medusa as opposed to Madonna, the Beth Binu documentary about lunch, The War is Never Over, and Baths.
lucky to grow up in Rochester, New York. First of all, I experienced the race riots of 64 and 67. And they happened right outside my front door. And my father's car was set on fire. And he sent me up to my attic bedroom. And I don't know whether or not, come on baby, light my fire was on, but that was also a year of a lot of musical protest. So somehow it impacted me greatly and protest somehow was, was given to me, the sense of protest, whether I could consciously understand it or not. And I think that it was at the age of six that really I had a moment of consciousness that this was not right. I, mean, I don't mean only the riots, I mean my life was not, something was wrong here. And that is in, you know, the trauma zone of a family with a father who was basically at that time, outside of all society, a uh, petty criminal and, and pretty insane. I never had what you might call a normal life. Not when my first memory is of being rocked like a football inside of a cradle outside of a smoky game at Canasta, where my daddy was yelling, you stupid Jesus goddamn Christ, Lucy. I had a pair of goddamn jacks riding on that deuce and you had to go and blow it. How goddamn stupid can you get? My go, goddamn stupid enough to marry a Bible salesman that don't know his ass from first base, Lenny. That's how goddamn dumb. But I wasn't so stupid. As a matter of fact, I was pretty goddamn smart. Smart enough to get out of there by the time I was 14 or 16 before somebody got murdered. When I first got off the Greyhound in 76 or 7, I don't know when, probably 76, I went to this club I had read about in like rock scene or circus or cream magazine called Mothers. And there was a horrible band playing, but I've got nothing. I've got one small suitcase and 200 bucks. So I picked up the lead singer, said I'm an orphan, said okay, you can come and stay with us in Chelsea, thinking he had scored big. I did him once and then actually Kitty Bruce was moving out, Lenny Bruce's daughter. So I just skedaddled right up to her loft. And a few nights later I went to Max's Kansas City and suicide was playing. Suicide inspired me greatly because of the drama, how untraditional it was. Because of how frightening they were. I mean, not to me, they were perfect. Then I saw the band Mars. And Mars, that told me, all right, I need to have a band. And I wanted to make some of the angriest, yet most precise, bitter music, which was just a, a scream from the bowels, a caterwaul. was me exercising my hatred and anger, not only against the family, not only against the father, the father of our country, God as well. This was an indictment against authority. It needed to express part of who I was, and that was this black-haired, tantrumizing, sadistic, baby-faced killer. What appears to be so nihilistic about that period is we were products of our generation, meaning the Vietnam War, Kent State, the summer of love being but by the summer of Hayden Manson, Nixon, Watergate. We felt the 60s failed us. Our parents failed us. The country failed us. So we came together as a rallying force to document as exorcism, the dilemmas we were living at the time. At that point, I had the power. Hi, it's Lydia. Hi. Hello, what a great name. Your name is well, which I'm going to ask you all about, but welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, let's go. Okay, 
Please explain the choice and significance of your title, The War is Never Over. What war? <laughs> well, there's, there's battles we fight every day. And my main battle has always been the repression, oppression, depression, submission that the individual is forced into, whether it's under the political system, religious pressure, the nuclear family, being different, being other. That's one part of it. The other is just the continuing real wars that never stop on this planet, not only against the individuals, but against whole communities and countries of people. I don't get that this is still going on. And about your embrace of female power, you said, quote, how we devolved from Medusa to Madonna, I don't get it. What can you say about that? <laughs> from Kali to Courtney Love. Well, especially in this time now, I'm just going to give one kind of silly example. I wish that there would be newspaper articles about women saying, he said or did something ridiculous or sexist or stupid to me, and... I might have slapped him in the face, started laughing, reduced him to his knees where he's begging for his mother, and then called up his name. I'd like to see that once. Not, not that violence solves every issue, and certainly we know what the issues are. You know, and women have got to be, especially now, as strong as possible in every way. They have to know psychic, physical, and verbal self-defense. Because sexism, which is to me just... Another, I think everything starts with classism, then we have sexism and we have racism, and they're all pretty much the same. And we know who the enemy is in that, and, and the bigger picture of things. And again, it's against anyone or anything other, whether it's women, people of color, people just different by nature. And there's a lot more of us than there are, for instance, the Republicans in positions of power trying to eliminate the rights of individuals and democracy in general. And with your embrace of feminism, why have you only collaborated in your music on stage with men? Well, I have. I have a, I've had a, an all-girl group called Harry Cruz. I guess because it's not in the film. Because, well, it'll be in the extras. Uh. I mean, I, I mean, Beth came, came travel to Poland um, and to Portugal to film my three-piece female improv group, Medusa's Bed. And it'll be on the DVD extras. Okay. I curate spoken word shows constantly with women of all different generations. It's a, you know, also trying to put 43 years of patient into 75 minutes, very difficult. You know, very difficult. And also, I mean, I've done records with Adele Bertade, you know, singing with me, Carla Bosley. I've produced spoken word records by um, the, the poet, now, now, now gone, Wanda Coleman, but that's Wisconsin. So it's not that I haven't, it's just, how do you fit all of this in? And how and when did you evolve into Lydia Lunch, and why your new persona, Lunch? <laughs> well, look, I didn't choose the name, and it was bestowed upon me as a teenager before I even did any music, because being poor in New York, I got a job for two weeks, stole some food and gave it to musician friends, walking down the street with the stolen goods, Willie DeVille and Ming DeVille said, Lydia Lush, and it was just like it stuck. I didn't choose it. I think it sounds like a porno name. I think it's kind of silly. <laughs> but here I am, I'm not being hopefully, not only literally feeding my friends, I also wrote a cookbook. I also hope I'm feeding the souls of people that feel there's a hole in it made by disappointment, frustration, or anger. Yeah. Now, with punk and your views of the 60s generation that came before, you express a disappointment and resentment towards them, yet they were angry and protested too, even if more optimistic than your generation that followed. So what do you feel personally went wrong that led to the punk generation? And as you've said, we felt the 60s failed us. Right. Well, look, they tried. There were valiant attempts. But again, we, that is the other, is always outnumbered. If we're not outnumbered, we're outgunned. We're incarcerated. We're shut down. I wouldn't say, I would call it frustration and some disappointment that we didn't make further progress. But you also, you know, understanding that my generation after the 60s 
There was the Vietnam War still going on. There was Nixon still going, Kennedy assassinations. Kent State, there were so many things, the corruption, the bankruptcy of New York, there were the summer of hate. There were so many things that frustrated us. We knew we couldn't fix them. And it's not like we gave up hope. We just put our frustrations into a different format. And I don't, I don't consider myself punk. I consider myself no way. I've never done punk music. I mean, pure punk from the outside. But I consider myself no way, which is more in the tradition of surrealism and Dada, the Viennese actionist. And what about the millennials today? In contrast to the punk generation, and where do you see them headed? Well, I mean, whatever is going on now in whatever generation, we get so much of the worst of news focusing on the worst type of people. But I have hope always for every generation. And I mean, I, you know, being ageist, which sometimes one gets, I mean, I'm constantly made aware of people in their 20s that are on the right path to doing something unique that understand uh, that there's a lot more than just getting likes on Twitter or Instagram. And I think, you know, that the uprise of social media has turned a lot of people just into celebrity sluts, <laughs> in a sense, which is ridiculous. I mean, and, you know, coming up as I did, the, la- the last thing we ever thought about was how long we're going to be doing this or how many people are going to like it. It's not as if I'm still widely liked. You know, I'm a bit much to take still. And it's got nothing to do with who or how many people like me. I'm going to continue doing what I do. So that's worrisome to me. You know, I consider it like the Kardashian curse. Famous for nothing. <laughs> that people strive for. I think it's very dangerous and unhealthy. And where do you see yourself now and down the road into the future, creatively and also personally? Well, I think I'm in a very good place. I think we all need to embrace that we're in a better place than we were two years ago, obviously. And I feel quite hopeful. Not necessarily, I can call Kafka and say, there is hope, but not for us. I don't really feel that. But hopeful for what? I know that I'm going to continue to create in all the formats I do. I'm going to carry on, and I'm going to continue to collaborate with people. I'm going to continue. Now I, my podcast, The Lydian Spin, is it's the second year now. It's like the second year anniversary in two weeks. And within that scope, I'm pre- presenting many women, many different kinds of artists, you know, as a platform so that people can become aware of other people they might not have heard of. So I'm continuing that. Right now I'm doing a, my own documentary on artists, depression, anxiety, and rage. And we've interviewed 35 creative types, because I think these are issues that really need to be dealt with, and a lot of people are raising their hands and talking about it now. So just to continue doing what I'm doing, find different formats to do it in. And when Lydia Lunch looks in the mirror, what does she see today, and in contrast to when you started out? Oh my God, I love myself, and I only wish everybody would love themselves equally. No, I'm not going to look in the mirror at this moment. I've been up till 7 o'clock in the morning. But other than that, <laughs> I wish more people could really become their biggest fans. They don't need to be my biggest fans. That's, you know, get in line. That's enough. But I wish people would really get to be better friends with themselves. And whatever it is that's bothering them, that's frustrating them, making them feel crappy, that they have to realize that was put upon them. That is not them. And, and strangely enough, I'm extremely positive in spite of the fact that, you know, I concentrate on, I'm not a solutionist, I concentrate on the problems that exist. But I think that a lot of people, the, the people that come to my shows, I hope that they find some kind of relief in that. And most importantly, that they feel better about themselves. And I wanted to ask you, where are you calling from? I'm in Brooklyn. Where are you? <laughs> I'm in Manhattan. All right, then. It's hot. It's, it's boiling hot wherever we are. It's horrible. Okay. I'm taking an ice bath when we get off the phone, Bert. Well, I took a bath right before. Okay. We're in the right. We're on the same page. So, any last word about the war is never over? Well, I just hope that people come to see it and get a feeling. But first of all, the best part about it to me is that 
we were able to get so many different flavors of what I do in there, even though we couldn't get them all, you know, that, that Beth was able to collect performances over, you know, the past four decades and make something coherent from it. And I hope it just gives power and strength to the individuals that feel as if they know there is a tribe for them. Where is it? Well, welcome over here. Come to me, the weirdos, the outsiders, the frustrated, the desperate, and the joyful, and the hedonist. Time to have a good time. Yeah. Even even if that means a nice bath in five minutes. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much, Lydia Lunch, for calling into the show. Thank you very much, Prairie. Thank you for the interest. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. And The War Is Never Over is out now in release. And next up on Arts Express, Bro on the Art World Beat, in a continuing discussion of the work of the late, eminent African-American subversive political painter Robert Colescott, with connections to challenging the privatization of art, Cold War repression, abstract art and the CIA, and placing black representation front and center. This is Bro on the Art World Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Colescott Chronicles, Part 2. Breaking free of the shackles of colorblindness and abstract art. One of the founding members of the new black art just reaped the rewards of his painterly prowess. Robert Colescott's monumental George Washington Carver crossing the Delaware recently sold for $15.3 million and is thus far the highlight purchase of the George Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, scheduled to open in Los Angeles in 2023. This was nearly 17 times what any previous Colescott painting sold for, and unfortunately the artist, who died in 2009, will not reap the rewards. The painting, which shows a ragtag band of black workers in their professions and at leisure in a ragged vessel with a patch that could at any moment spring a leak, is a satirical rendering of the 1851 staple of Americana, Washington crossing the Delaware. Colescott's humorous rendition was described by the Lucas Museum as racially, socially, and historically charged and at once a contemporary and historical work of art. That description suits Colescott's art as a whole, which emerges after a long and arduous journey out of the mode of American painting dominant when he entered the field, abstract expressionism, through his engagement with Egyptian art and his own sometimes hilarious, sometimes painful observations and experience with the legacy of colonialism and racism. These insights led him to raid the treasure trove of Western art to imprint his own stamp on it in a way that was more expansion of black representation in line with the work of artists, filmmakers, and television showrunners today than simple appropriation. Colescott was born in Oakland in 1925 after a westward migration of his parents described in his painting 1919. In it, his mother, an African-American who identified as white, in white dress and green hat with a bow, and his father with mixed African and Native American heritage in army fatigues bearing the mark of the buffalo soldier, face off on opposite sides of the country. His father was a jazz musician who was forced instead to work on the traditional Negro job as a Pullman conductor. Colescott, his mother's favorite, passed in enlisting into the Army as a teenager and fought with a white unit in World War II. It wasn't until an extended trip to Egypt where he discovered a history of black art that he stopped passing at the same time as he definitively discontinued a flirtation with abstract art. The second major influence on Colescott was his study in Paris with the Cubist Fernand Leger in 1949, courtesy of the GI Bill. Leger refused to look at Colescott's Cubist abstract renderings and instead steered the young painter toward representation, exhibited in Leger's own construction workers, presenting a kaleidoscope of workers rebuilding France after the war, including a centerpiece Algerian worker. Colescott later reworked this motif in the American context as hard hats showing the hierarchy of white American workers with black workers surrounding them and underpinning their labor. The major change in Colescott's work, though, occurred because of two sojourns in Egypt, where he recounted that he was for the first time confronted with 3,000 years of black art. He was particularly enamored with the paintings in an ancient burial site in the ruins of the Valley of the Queens. These two murals of Nubian female royalty had figures floating freely in space, everywhere surrounded with splashes of pure color. 
Colescott incorporated this freedom and this concentration on the black female form into a series he did at the time, a highlight of which is 1967's depiction of one of these queens in Nihad in the New World, with the title suggesting his wish to transport what he learned in Egypt to the African-American context at home. The importance of Egypt to Colescott and Colescott to Egypt was acknowledged in the recent Robert Colescott, The Cairo Years, exhibit at the American University of Cairo. My exhibition talk on Colescott is available on my YouTube website. Along with this immersion in a tradition of black art went his being thrown into the turbulence of the 1960s, having to flee Egypt because of the onset of the Arab-Israeli Six Days War, and thus experiencing Middle Eastern colonialism firsthand, and then returning to the political hotbed of San Francisco as the Vietnam War protest and Haight-Ashbury counterculture reached its peak in 1968. As Colescott made the transition from pure abstraction to a more socially and politically committed art, a journey that was in no way validated at the time in the art world, he was sustained by his university connections, the last place artists could find public support for their work in light of the dominance of the legacy of abstract work in the gallery system. Here, though, he was also thwarted. He wanted to be full-time faculty at Berkeley, where he had gone to school but was passed over for a job, finally ending at the University of Arizona at Tucson, where he became the first faculty member of the art department to receive the prestigious title Regents Professor. From social expressionism to abstract expressionism and back again. The triumph of abstract expressionism in the post-war 40s and 50s and its subsequent influence on conceptualism, minimalism, serialism, etc., was accomplished at the height of the Cold War with the blessing of U.S. intelligence and through the silencing of two other currents of modernism, the American social expressionists and the Mexican muralists, both of whom retained the political thrust of earlier modernist movements. This suppression, detailed in my book, Cold War Expressionism, Perverting the Politics of Perception, subtitled Bombast, Blacklists, and Blockades in the Postwar Art World, was the work of the popular front artists of the 30s and 40s, dumped on the market and sold for pennies. Their work was outlawed in the prestigious galleries, which came into prominence with the decline of government support for an art of the people. What grew up alongside what the banker and later Vice President Nelson Rockefeller termed free enterprise painting was a privatization of a form of art that was designed to be consumed by the burgeoning post-war corporate elite. The high priest of the movement, the critic Clement Greenberg, urged artists to re-engage with those to whom art actually belongs, our ruling class. Tom Braden made the apparently not very arduous leap from the executive secretary of the Rockefeller's Museum of Modern Art, the Temple of Abstract Expressionism, to the CIA Director of Cultural Affairs, where he extolled the virtues of the new abstraction, which he claimed constituted the ideal style, now that its artists had left behind their earlier interest in political activism. The artists themselves were mixed about this adoption of their art, where once monumental murals that expressed social struggle were replaced by large-scale abstract gaudy color schemes, such as the yellows and reds of Mark Rothberg's 1953 Untitled Number 10, colors that announced the global triumph of American consumerism in works that now hung on suburban walls or in corporate lobbies. Meanwhile, the political artists who had been supported by the government in the New Deal 1930s were now forced into exile, as the artist Alice Neal, currently the subject of a retrospective at New York's Metropolitan Museum, with no visible source of income, moved to Spanish Harlem, where she painted portraits of its inhabitants and gray dingy landscapes, such as Rag and Window, that expressed the loneliness of her political exile, and that also contrasted to the productivist corporate spirit of that other symbol of the New York's landscape, the skyscraper. Another prominent political artist, Jacob Lawrence, who described himself as an expressionist painter and whose subject matter centered on ordinary black workers, equally fell on hard times and at the height of the Cold War repression, had a mental breakdown and spent a year in an asylum. His work was scattered to the four winds, and a recent painting, ironically, of farmers contesting the power of the government in the Shea Rebellion as part of the series The American Struggle, has recently been recovered after it was passed around and sold at a charity art auction. The other suppressed movement prominent in this period, which Colescott, when he came out as social expressionist, would have affinities towards, was that of the Mexican muralists, and particularly in the 50s and 60s, the work and path of David Alfaro Siqueiros. The movement vied for renown with the abstract expressionists of the 1950 Venice Biennale. It was a triumph, and then toured Europe, where it was finally savaged by French critics with American backing when it reached Paris and reconfined to Mexico. 
not to emerge in the American consciousness until last year's thoroughgoing reexamination at New York's Whitney Museum, in the wake of which it was claimed that the Mexican muralists were more important as influences on American modernism than French artists. Siqueiros was the first to represent the female Mexican indigenous body in a corporeal way in, for example, 1924's Peasant Mother that might have sensitized Colescott in his later representation of many shades of African and African-American female bodies, most notably in his 1986 Picasso takeoff, Les Damonswell d'Alabama. Colescott, who had watched Diego Rivera's painting of a mural at the Golden Gate Bridge, also had in common with Siqueiros the journey to Egypt, where in 65, Siqueiros declared himself to be in favor of the non-aligned movement in an extended stay in Nasser's Egypt. Colescott himself satirized the gallery collector system of privatized and marketized or commodified art in his work, T for Two. Colescott appears as himself, a hip black artist in checkerboard pants, leaning languidly on a fireplace of an affluent home. The artist knows what sells, how to brand himself, and how to appeal to the sexualized white female, rich collector who gazes at him. The curly cue wafting of the artist's cigarette and the tea is picked up in the abstract designs on the canvas that the artist is peddling. A black servant delivers the tea, highlighting the structure of racial inequality that underpins the entire arrangements. Colescott's work in breaking free of the legacy of abstract expressionism would be a sustained challenge to the still formidable injunction that art should properly remain silent on the world's increasingly more violent devastation under a form of capitalism where greed knows no bounds, or that art's sole role must be confined to obscure and wry comments on its place in a certain highly limited and reified area of commodity exchange. In the 1980s and 90s, Colescott would move beyond T for Two to take on wider issues of unequal racial and gender representation and to put on display the ways the still-dominant U.S. post-colonial system was built on a history of racial exploitation and domination. This is Bro on the World Art Beat, Breaking Glass. And now on Arts Express, this week, July 14th, is Bastille Day, celebrating the event that marked the beginning of the French Revolution back in 1789. And here is a revisiting of that historic moment back in time, how it all went down, and connections to Voltaire, the man in the Iron Mask, the Marquis de Sade arriving at the Bastille as a prisoner and with over 130 books, and running nude in the streets of Paris to celebrate that newfound freedom. For the longest time, the Bastille trapped the people of Paris under its terrorizing shadow. It stood there, tall, in the middle of the city as an eternal reminder of royal despotism. A site of endless tortures, oppression, and fear. Yet, when it was finally stormed on July 14, 1789, the people were unable to find the torture chambers and rotting corpses that the rumors led them to believe existed. And of the few prisoners they found, none of them were as frail and miserable as writers such as Voltaire had once described them. So how did the destruction of a mostly abandoned old fortress that treated its few prisoners well became a symbol of the French Revolution? In the 14th century, France was in the middle of the 100 Years' War, and the capital was threatened by the rotten scoundrels commonly known as the English. The west of Paris was already protected by the Louvre. Yes, this Louvre. However, it was much less glamorous back then. But Paris's expansion meant that the east needed protection too. This was especially true after the capture of the French king following the disastrous Battle of Poitiers. As a result, the mayor of Paris, then known as a provost, undertook the strengthening of the city's defenses by expanding its walls in 1357 and building two large towers around the Saint-Antoine Gate. These types of defenses were known as Bastilles, and so the gateway was named the Bastille Saint-Antoine. Following this, per French tradition, the mayor was executed in 1358. A decade later, the King of France was still concerned by English attacks and ordered the new provost of Paris, Hugues Aubriot, to fortify the Bastille Saint-Antoine. He did so by building six new towers, thus giving the Bastille its iconic shape. 
At 68 meters tall, the fortress stood far above everything surrounding it, which was mostly just countryside and a few hamlets. Its design was highly innovative for its time, as its round shape made it stronger than square counterparts, and its regular height allowed for faster troop movements. In recognition of this architectural marvel, per French traditions, Aubriot was made the very first prisoner of the Bastille. What an honor. Yet, this was all in vain, as in 1420, the King of England was able to capture Paris. The fact that the Bastille was usually garrisoned by 20 people might have had something to do with it. 16 years later, the French recaptured Paris, but just as they were getting over the humiliation of losing their capital, the Burgundians successfully captured the fortress and the city in 1464. Throughout the 16th century, the Bastille was further developed, along with the city of Paris, which would reach a population of a quarter million by the end of the century. For the addition of an arsenal and arms depot, it became a prominent military center, and as such, it was at the center of numerous conflicts during France's brutal religious wars and subsequent civil wars. In the 17th century, with the reign of Louis XIV, the Bastille gained its authority as the symbol of French despotism and absolutism. As Louis XIV further strengthened and centralized power into its own hands, it would detain over 2,000 individuals throughout his reign, or an average of 43 yearly. A stark contrast to the seven prisoners that remained in the Bastille when it was stormed in 1789. What made the Bastille so unique? So oppressive was the fact that all its prisoners were put there only by order of lettres de cachet. A lettre de cachet were direct orders from the king, which were generally used to imprison someone without trial for an indefinite amount of time. Even worse so, Louis XIV is known to have used them for reasons as petty as disagreeing with him on religious matters. The man in the iron mask, whose identity is still unknown today, is probably the greatest symbol of this period, having spent more than 30 years in prison, while forced to wear a leather mask as to hide his identity. By Louis XIV's death, Paris's population reached 400,000, and the city had started to grow around the Bastille, which now overshadowed the neighborhood. And while France's absolutist zeal faltered along with the king's death, Political uncertainty and growing tension against Protestants meant that the yearly number of prisoners spiked to over 180. As Paris grew, the Bastille became a clear divide between the wealthy aristocratic neighborhood of the Marais and the densely populated working-class faubourg of Saint-Antoine. As such, it became a symbol of the growing inequalities between the nobles and commoners and the people started to feel true resentment against this symbol of oppression that was visible from anywhere in the neighborhood. This wasn't aided by the numerous accounts of famous writers who stayed there, such as Voltaire or journalist Simon-Nicolas Languet, who wrote dramatized accounts of their stay at the Bastille. Ironically, as the Bastille was being used less and less while living conditions improved, its image and reputation became further and further tarnished. The Marquis of Sade arrived with an elaborate wardrobe and over 130 books. Some even were allowed to bring their pets, while others had their servants imprisoned with them as to continue getting pandered. If this wasn't enough, the king would then offer prisoners a yearly pension following the release as to encourage good behavior. It is no surprise that Jacques Necker recommended closing the Bastille on an economics basis alone. But the secrecy, rumors, and literature that surrounded it made it a prominent symbol of it. That, combined with the fact that he had recently received 250 barrels of gunpowder, made it the perfect target for the revolutionary zeal of Parisians. On July 11, 1789, Louis XVI dismissed and banished his finance minister, the Swiss banker Jacques Necker. This caused outrage among the Parisians who strongly favored Necker due to his support of the Third Estate and the belief that only he could save France from economic collapse. Furthermore, his dismissal was seen as a shift towards a more conservative government and that, coupled with an increased concentration of royalist troops in the capital, led to massive protests by the locals. Over 10,000 Parisians garnered around the Palais Royal, where Camille Desmoulins, standing on a table with a pistol in hand, 
famously rallied the mob by screaming, Citizens, there is no time to lose. The dismissal of Necker is the kneel of a Saint Bartholomé for patriots. This very night, all the Swiss and German battalions will leave the Champ de Mars to massacre us all. One resource is left, to take arms. The Swiss and Germans mentioned were the foreign mercenary troops that made up half of the royalist army in the capital and that were believed to be less sympathetic to the popular cause as opposed to the French troops that had often defected to them. This fear proved itself to be somewhat accurate as the Royal German Dragoons charged into the protesting crowd to disperse it. On July 14th, mass looting ensued as the Persians sacked any place that could include weapons, food, and supplies. The Royal troops did nothing to stop the ransacking as it became clearer and clearer that they had lost control of the city. On that same day, a bourgeois militia of 48,000 men was formed to restore order. General Lafayette was then given control of the militia, which he would rename the National Guard. On the following morning, the famous July 14th, the newly created militia stormed the Hôtel des Invalides, a vast military complex that held up to 32,000 muskets. However, they had no gunpowder, as the commander of the Invalides had transferred it to the Bastille, which was now the last remaining royalist stronghold in Paris. By late morning, a crowd of 954 Parisians, later called Les Vainqueurs de la Bastille, gathered around the Bastille prison. The crowd demanded its surrender, along with its supply of arms and gunpowder. Bernard René de Launay, a minor officer who commanded the Bastille, invited two representatives to start negotiations. However, the negotiations dragged on, and the impatient crowd stormed the outer courtyard and released the drawbridge, which fell on a vainqueur and killed him. Gunfire from the Bastille suddenly started, and the vainqueur feared that they had fallen into a trap. By mid-afternoon, mutinous French troops had joined the mob, along with two cannons. These weren't powerful enough to destroy the Bastille's walls, and so they were aimed at its gates. Delaunay feared that if the crowd entered the inner courtyard, he would have to aim his cannons at them and commit a massacre. Instead, he decided to declare a ceasefire by 5 p.m. And a half hour later, he opened the doors of the Bastille to allow the vainqueur to deliver it. The storming of the Bastille succeeded in its main goal, legitimizing the revolution. Louis says learn about the event the following day and ask if it was a revolt, to which he was replied, no sire, it's not a revolt, it's a revolution. At first, the revolutionaries were unsure of the fate of the Bastille, but Mirabeau symbolically started destroying the prison himself and at that point, he didn't leave much choice to anyone else. By November of the same year, the fortress had been destroyed, and in 1793, a fountain was built on the new Place de la Bastille. However, Napoleon disliked the revolutionary image associated with the Place de la Bastille, and decided to erect a large imperial elephant there, which would later become a prominent location of Victor Hugo's famous Les Miserables. Despite this, the ancient location of the Bastille remained a strong symbol of the revolution, and so in 1833, the July Column was built there as to commemorate the three glorious days. The first official celebration of Bastille Day occurred in 1790 on the Champ de Mars and was called the Fête de la Fédération. Despite the rain, over 260,000 Parisians, or over a third of the population then, watched as General Lafayette and the King took oath on the new constitution. This was then followed by four days of celebrations and feasting, burning replicas of the Bastille, and, much like a kid who has recently joined college, running nudes in the streets of Paris as to celebrate newfound freedom. And even during Nazi occupation in World War II, Bastille Day was still celebrated under the command of de Gaulle in London. But compared to July 4th in the US, it isn't really celebrated that much. Sure, there are fireworks and the parade in Paris that we all watch, but we don't really do any flag waving, and above all, no barbecue. Or maybe my family was just sad like that. Nevertheless, my friends, I hope you have a great bestie day, French or not.
thank you for that presentation. This is Barris on YouTube. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Pink Floyd musician and activist Roger Waters with a birthday message for imprisoned progressive journalist Julian Assange, who turned 50 this week on July 3rd. Still imprisoned there these past three years in the UK, for no other reason than the U.S. objecting to his release and appealing for his extradition on trumped-up espionage charges that could put him away forever. Here we go. Third time lucky. Happy birthday. The sun is over the yard on in Belmarsh Prison. I, I, I wish I could raise a smile, but I'm so sick of these arseholes and what they're doing to you. But let it not be forgotten that when the annals of these histories are written, when we're free, when you're free, when we're all free, you will be the knight in shining armor, son. Absolutely nailed on because you are the man and we love you for your courage your steadfastness and for telling us the truth until next time this is prairie miller leaving the station